Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit ceatechn.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. This week, Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, and I will discuss the practicalities of owning an EV. Tom, welcome back to Green Sense. Thanks for having me. Tom, you're so knowledgeable about all things automotive. I thought this week we'd talk about something a little tangential to cars. Uh, usually we're talking about performance and specs, Yeah. but there's a whole ecosystem that's around cars and especially EVs as they're new to the market. And EVs are quickly growing in the makeup of cars on the street, but as they grow in uh, popularity, the ecosystem that supports them also must increase uh, to keep up with it, to uh, keep the cars uh, moving. And that includes financing, insurance, charging network, and most importantly, a secondary market to buy and sell all those used EVs. So um, I want to give a shout out to a longtime listener, my brother, Julius Colangelo, who owns a Tesla Y. He gave me the idea for today's show as him and I had a conversation about his experience owning a Tesla. And he's drinking the Kool-Aid and he's a believer <laughs> in Tesla's EVs. And for him, there's no better car. And in general, I tend to agree with him. And our brotherly discussion hit on three key points that I want to uh, go over with you. The first one, are EVs currently handicapped compared to gas cars when driving long distances? The second, does the speed in which EV technology is advancing accelerate depreciation uh, uh, of your very expensive EV purchased and how can you de-risk that acceleration? And then lastly, is it currently better to lease or buy an EV? You ready to get into it? Oh yeah. All right, so the first one. Now that EVs have been around for a while, and we all love them, uh, I think you do too, uh, let's get your expert opinion on some of those issues that my brother and I discussed. So the first one, are EVs handicapped when it comes to driving long distances? My position is that it's going to take you uh, longer to find a working charger and the time it takes to charge your car than filling it up uh, with gas when driving more than four hours. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I just did some math on this and, and the results were interesting. I know that you and I had recently separately made a similar trip and that was from Chicago to the Denver area. That's about a thousand miles. And to make that trip uh, with an EV can be a very different experience depending on the EV and depending on your luck. So let's talk a little bit about if you were to do it with a Chevrolet Bolt with a B which is a very likable, very affordable EV with some decent range, but it's got a couple of interesting drawbacks. And these drawbacks do hurt it on a long trip. If you were to drive a thousand miles in a Bolt, and if you left your desti- or you left your home with a full charge, you would probably have to stop four different times to charge. Here's the problem. The Bolt, though likable and very fun to drive, has a very slow charge rate, maximum 55 kilowatts of energy. So it's going to take you one hour each time you start to get an 80% charge. So you're going to need to stop four times for about four hours 
over a thousand miles to get your boat where you're going. And that's assuming that the charging stations work. You can find functioning charging stations um, and, and that it's not especially cold out. Now, if you were to buy something like, or to drive something like a Kia EV6, which is a much more advanced vehicle, much very, really great car if you've driven one, um, about 300 miles of range, but super fast charging. If you can find 350 kilowatt hour chargers along your route, and they're working right and delivering that power, you're only stopping for about 15 to 18 minutes at each stop, which isn't a whole lot more than getting gas, assuming you stop to run in for a Diet Pepsi or something. So your, your trip, assuming you can find charging and luck is in, in your corner, can be about the same as using a gasoline-powered vehicle or four hours longer. So the big assumption there is if. Can yeah. you find a charger? <laughs> is it working? And is it high speed? And I think that's where uh, my discussion with my brother made me realize this is a good thing to talk about because those big ifs are usually a no. A lot of times these chargers don't work. They're not fast chargers. They're not in the right position when you need them. And so that was where I came up with the idea that really EVs are somewhat uh, a handicap right now until yeah. they get that charging network fixed. Or is there another thing that needs to be fixed? For example, what happens if they increase the range? You know, if you got 500 miles to the charge, maybe this wouldn't be an issue. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the two things that need to change, and they don't both need to change at the same time, we need improved range or we need faster charging. Faster charging costs money. And, and the system that's in the Kia EV6, for example, that's an 800 volt system. It, it adds money to the price of the vehicle. The other thing is, is, if not improved range, much faster charging. And that doesn't seem to be on the horizon right now. It looks like 350 kilowatts is about all we're going to get. So we need more charging stations and we need them to be available. And we need to know that they're available. I have used the app in, on, on my phone and I've used the, uh, the navigation system in EVs. And they sometimes contradict each other, which is unsettling when you know you need to charge. So to me, again, why I think it's handy, EVs handicapped right now for long distance is that either you need to own two cars, a gas and an EV, yeah. you need to build an extra time for your trip, or you need to rent a gas car. But uh, as of right now, it's going to take longer and, and you may be delayed uh, if you have to go out of your way to find your chargers. Anything else you'd like to say about that? Yeah, in, in discussing specifically the trip from Chicago to the Denver area, once you get west of sort of the western side of Kansas, charging stations grow sparse pretty quickly. So you need to have a route planned out in advance. You need to know where charging stations are. And that's just a lot more work than if you were trying to find a gas station. So we don't think we're going to get an extensive network of fast chargers, but I do think we're going to start to see more range coming out of cars. That that will probably happen fairly quickly. I think that's the thing that will happen first. Well, let's move on to the next one, which is really a good segue from the first. So with all this battery technology changing and uh, just the whole technology around an EV changing, uh, what happens if... Uh, uh, a cheaper battery with longer range is developed, what will that do to the value of your current car? Uh, and how do you de-risk your situation so that you don't end up with a very expensive piece of garage art that you can <laughs> sell down the line? Thoughts on that? <laughs> I do have some thoughts on that. And I'm not sure that 
a leap in battery technology, and the next leap might be solid state batteries. Um, a leap in battery technology will hurt the resale value of EVs too much because there is, I think, a growing used car demand for EVs, and there are plenty of people who would be happy to have 200 or 250 miles of range for a second or third car. So were those to become even slightly more affordable, I think that you could find the market there. Um, I'm not too worried about EVs suddenly plunging in value, though they would plunge a little, I think, if we suddenly saw vehicles with four or 500 miles of range. So recently, Tesla uh, reduced the price on some of its models. Yeah. And that created a, a volatility in the marketplace. It lowered the price of used uh, EVs. Uh, so there is a lot of volatility there, and these cars are very expensive. And so do you have any concern that maybe you won't have a zero value, but your uh, value could decrease uh, greatly, maybe more than a gas car? Yeah, one thing to worry about, and I don't know how to measure this exactly, is that the secondary market for EVs is going to be people who are value shopping. And some of those people, the people who might be in that segment, may not be people who can necessarily afford charging. So I, I think, I'm not charging, I'm sorry, but uh, we'll have options to charge and maybe um, less inclined to go electric. So that's a thing to watch for. I, I, the transition is going to be a, a bit of a bubble or a bit of a dip, depending on how easily and how quickly people in the secondary EV market adapt to charging. If they're willing to charge only in public stations, that might work well, but a lot of the people will be people in apartments or in condominiums where they don't have much control over their uh, the garage space and may not be able to charge at home. With the uh, the battery making up a tremendous amount of value for the EV, I know on the Tesla, some it's somewhere around twenty thousand plus to to change that battery. Um, I've also found that there's nowhere on the cars that show what your battery life is. Is that true, or is there a way to tell what your battery life is? Um, generally, not on the car. There are a number of of services and a number of devices that are coming online that can determine the health of a battery. Cox Automotive, which runs the largest uh, um, used vehicle resale, the wholesale um, auction houses, um, has begun or will soon begin to report battery health as part of the auction information. So that, that can be tested. And we're going to be looking for numbers like 90% capacity, 77% capacity, something like that. And, and that's going to be the new odometer, basically, on a vehicle. And Tom, how, what are you seeing as far as real degradation of a battery life over the years? I have checked three sources today. One of them was reported on InsideEVs.com, which is a fun message board. But we're seeing degradation of 2 to 3% per year. Uh, of battery life. And, and that seems to be average. Um, popular thinking is that if you do a lot of level three DC fast charging, you're going, to you're going to degrade your battery a little bit quicker. And if you only charge at home using a garage charger or a level two charger, your battery will last longer. So my brother claims that the Tesla is supposed to be getting a million miles of battery life. What are your thoughts on that? A million. Uh, Maybe, but those last few miles are going to stink. <laughs> that seemed very... <laughs> See, I needed you in that conversation, Tom. <laughs> you know how brothers like get. that before. I think GM is promising extraordinary battery life for its Altium batteries too. We'll see. All right. Well, let's move on. So the big question this all comes down to is how do you finance your car? 
with a uh, EV being quite expensive these days, is it best to buy or lease? And when you buy a car, you assume all the upside and downside risk. And when you lease, uh, you pretty much walk away at the end of the lease. But leases can be a complicated way to purchase a car. There's many different negotiating uh, points in there. Uh, uh, the nice thing is uh, all, all you have to do when you buy a car is negotiate the price. So let's dig into a lease and some of the things that you need to be aware of. So I've got a number here. Uh, I'll just read out and then we can go through each by uh, one by one. The okay. first is the down payment. What is your monthly payment? The term of the lease, the interest rate. Uh, a question I want to ask are government incentives that you get when you buy a car also right. available when you lease it your residual value, and can you buy back the car if uh, your car's worth more than was estimated? And then lastly, any fine print that you should be aware of. So the first is the down payment, Tom. And what kind of a down payment are we looking at when we lease a car, an EV specifically? Yeah, when you buy a car, when you purchase a car, all right, they're always looking for 20%. And then uh, the, the, the down payment sometimes called a like a cap reduction cost, something like that, is much less on a lease or should be because part of the reason that you lease is so you're less less cash out of pocket. Typically, that's something like 5% of the amount of the of the of the value of the vehicle. Uh, if it's higher, you may want to look somewhere else for a lease. So if we've got a $50,000 car, 5%, we're looking at a $2,500 down payment, and you never get that money back, correct? Right, that's just rolled into the lease. And yeah, that's money you're paying for the car. And how do they calculate your monthly payment? So there's the gap. When you, le when you lease a vehicle, it's basically you're buying that vehicle for an amount of time, usually two or three years, most, most popularly. And you're paying that amount plus interest. So if, if your car is going to be worth 60% of what it's worth when you start, that 40% is basically what you're leasing the vehicle for plus interest and any fees and any profits that the lessor is, is rolling into the loan. So if we have a $50,000 car, 40% would be $20,000 that uh, you would divide by the number of months that your payment is uh, and plus your interest, and that would get you your monthly payment. Yes. And where does the down payment come in? Does the that reduce your should, monthly payment at all? Should, the cap reduction should reduce that that amount being financed. Yes. And are there are there any nuances specific to EVs when when they're leased? Not specifically. One thing to think about when you lease an EV is that there is a federal requirement that there is an eight year, one hundred thousand mile warranty on the battery, and you are paying for that whether or not you use it. So that is rolled into the value of the vehicle when you lease it. So you sort of lose some money there or some value there because you're paying for an awful lot of warranty that you're not going to be getting. It's, 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 a, it's a minor thing, but it's a thing to think about. So the term of the lease is, is how long uh, that period is going to be that you make payments. One thing I saw in Tesla was that they would only do three-year leases. And at the end of the lease, you were not able to buy the car. So if they miscalculated and there was any upside and your car was worth more, you couldn't buy it, they would keep it. Is that common uh, within the EV industry or is that unique to Tesla? Uh, I don't know about with EVs. It's certainly not common with general you know, commercial leases. It, typically you get, there's a buyout and you can buy the car for that. And because car values have gone up so much in the recent, 
you know, in recent months, people are profiting from that buyout. Um, so yeah, the Tesla situation seems unique. Um, government incentives. There's a, there is government incentives available for uh, EVs. Are you able to take advantage of that when you lease? Depends on the lender. If you're working with a captive lender, which means a lender associated with the, uh, the manufacturer of the vehicle, they're going to apply those incentives to your lease. Uh, if you're working with a private bank or something like that, they may not. You may want to try to apply for them yourselves, but typically you have to own the vehicle for the lease to work. So that's a great question because you have the federal, uh, the federal incentives. And in many states, including Illinois, where I live, uh, there are local incentives too that you may lose by leasing and you want to watch that. So one of the, what I've seen are negotiating points are the residual value. What is that car going to be worth at the end of that lease? How is that calculated and is that negotiable? Yeah, a lot of companies, including uh, ALG, American Lease Guide, work hard to calculate those residual values. And I'm sure their job has been a nightmare uh, in the last couple of years. But typically, a new car is worth about 58% of its sticker price after three years. So that's roughly where your residual should be. Is that negotiable? Uh, it is not typically negotiable. What you find out is that um, it can be negotiable. Everything's negotiable. But... Um, Luxury makers used to incentivize vehicles by raising that value uh, as part of the incentive. So if the vehicle should have been worth 38 grand at the end of the lease, they might raise it to 40 as a way to reduce the lease payments. I see. And if your car is worth 50 and the residual value is 38, there's a $12,000 net proceed there. Are you able to take advantage of that? At the end of the lease. Yes, you can buy the car for the buyout rate and sell it for more or just hold on to it because you're getting a great deal on a used car. Any other fine print in a lease that you should be aware of specific to EVs? Um, nothing specific to EVs. So uh, bottom line, is it better to lease an EV or to buy it? And I know that's a hard question to ask and there's not a categorical answer but what guidelines would you give to someone? Yeah, it's, it's, all what, it's all about what you feel is going to happen to the EV market in the next five to 10 years, really in the next three years, I suppose, because that's the length of your lease. If you think that the value of your vehicle might go down because battery ranges are going to improve, that's one thing. But if you think there's a strong market for EVs and people are going to start looking for more affordable EVs, and the average transaction price right now in an EV is very high and much higher than the average transaction price and a gasoline vehicle, then maybe you bet that direction. So it, it's a bit of a gamble, and I don't know that I have a really good piece of advice. And nor do I know anyone does. It's so volatile out there. <laughs> so one thing I've read was that Tesla started their own insurance company. And is there anything specific uh, or unique to insuring EVs? No, though damage to the battery, it, it's more expensive to insure an EV right now. Largely because if you lose the battery, it's such an expensive component of the vehicle. Teslas are especially expensive uh, to replace, especially the Model Y, because of, we talked about this before, the Gigapress. If you damage that, that rear chassis component that is multiple elements to it, it, the whole thing needs to be replaced, and it's extraordinarily expensive. Uh, do you know if any state uh, this is probably hard with 50 states. Do they have any additional charges to license an EV? Yeah, we're seeing those pop up everywhere, unfortunately. And it's, it's funny that the government is, in one hand, 
using one hand to incentivize your purchase of the vehicle, and with the other hand, worried that you're not paying your fair share of tolls and gasoline taxes. So we, we're seeing, especially at the, the local level, um, increased uh, charges for licensing your vehicle, registering your vehicle, things like that. One of the big values of an EV is there's very little maintenance on it. There's no oil changes. The brakes last a very long time. Uh, there's very little you need to do with a car, but that battery is a big issue. What kind of warranty do you have on your battery and on the car typically? Yeah, uh, the same as with hybrid vehicles. There is a federally mandated eight-year, 100,000-mile warranty on the battery. Uh, it is prorated, so it, it would be reduced in value somewhat based on uh, uh, normal degradation to the battery over time, reductions in capacity. But that should be some comfort to a lot of people. Is that a point of contention, trying to understand how much uh, your battery is de degraded if it's failed? It probably is. And, and ultimately, I don't know that everyone's using the same system to determine this yet. There is equipment out there to do that, and I don't know how widespread its use is yet. Uh, what about battery recycling? Often in the environmental field, we wait till it's too late to think about environmental issues. Are manufacturers uh, making provisions and plans ahead of time to deal with these batteries at the end of their life cycle? Yeah, well, what we're seeing is manufacturers like BMW, for example, teaming up with third parties that are going to recycle batteries. We talked a little bit once, I think it was about Redwood Materials is one of the uh, looks like one of the leading recyclers of batteries, and they're going to be stripping the materials from that and, and hopefully very efficiently uh, applying them to new batteries. That's one way to do it. The Tesla model had been, and there aren't a lot of used Teslas or Teslas being scrapped yet, were, would be to take those batteries and to use them for stationary use, things like near windmills or something like that. Um, that's obviously just kicking the can down the road a little bit, because eventually that battery would also have to be recycled. But a secondary use is a secondary use. Um, but we're going to have millions of these EVs on the road and even more batteries. It's something that better be addressed soon. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it, it's funny because they're probably going to start showing up very soon. Where we're going to be dealing with these batteries en masse, but not a lot of them out there yet. Hopefully these systems are going to, to work the way they're advertised. So the last point we wanted to cover, and we've covered it many times before, is that charging network. And there's two parts of that, installing home chargers and then building a robust national charging network so that you can drive seamlessly from here uh, across the country. So the home chargers, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest on the show that does installation, Ron Cowgill. So he gave us uh, his thoughts on installing home chargers Anything you have to say about that as far as cost and speed? Yeah, if you live in a relatively new construction, then your cost is not going to be very high. I live in a really old house with 60 amp service, so I'm still afraid to install a charger, but I'm going to need to do that soon. Uh, but ultimately, at this point in time, it doesn't seem practical to own an EV and not have home charging. And what, what what's the minimum you'd recommend? In terms of... Uh, uh, amperage and speed? Oh, the, the standard system right now is a 32 amp, 6.6 .6 kilowatts uh, system. That's the one that most people have, and that's what seems to work very well. There are faster home level two chargers. I don't think most homes are available or are, are capable of uh, working with those systems. And lastly, what are your thoughts on the national charging network? We know a Tesla seems to be way out in advance, and they're 
being aggressive, installing fast chargers. What else is happening out there? One of the interesting things that's happening, and I think it, it represents a slight lack of faith in the free market in, to, in getting this done, is that manufacturers seem interested in, in, in building their own charging stations. So Cadillac recently made an announcement, Mercedes-Benz recently made an announcement about how they're going to be building their own networks that will be open to other people, but obviously uh, preferential access to, to the owners of their own vehicles. And I think it's interesting that manufacturers feel they need to get in on this because if you take a brand like Mercedes-Benz or Cadillac, they've committed pretty strongly early on to EVs and they may feel that, that without their own backing or their own network, uh, the public network may be, what's, what we understand about the public charging network is scaring people away. Tom, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I think we've provided our audience with some really good issues to really think deeply about when you buy an EV. Uh, are there any other issues in closing you'd like to share? Yeah, I'm, I'm still thinking about affordability of EVs and we'll see where that plays out too. Right now, because demand seems to be high, uh, EVs are running very expensive average transaction costs relative to internal combustion engine vehicles. But cheap vehicles are on the way. We'll see if people are buying those and, and if uh, what seems to be an EV price war will have some impact on affordability. Tom, always a pleasure having you on the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts on EVs. Thank you. That's Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive with our Green Automotive News Update. Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology. Visit ceatechtechn.com to see our growing technology. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM Chicago and visit the greensenseshow.com website to learn more about sponsorship.